Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A reminder. All people named in this podcast are to be presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. On the last episode of Guilt. I believe they both saw a lot more than they are letting on. I can only hope his conscience will get the better of him and he will tell me at a later date. The day after this, he says they went back up there and found the car parked near the second gate by the big oak. I'm convinced Darren knows what happened. He keeps telling me if I really am set on finding Heidi that I should be looking in the swamp further down the track from where Swen was found. I come back from overseas and, oh, hell, look out, Brother Spud's written a statement. Well, Brother Spud knows nothing. And of all of us, I know it all. Yeah. Right down to the nitty-gritty details. But this way, I go out to Matilda Bay and I look, come here and his brother's in the face and you fuckers, you know he did it. They don't question me. They think I did it. Okay, if I did it, then don't fuck with me. But I didn't. Like I say, I know shit that nobody wants to come out in the, out in the open. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is guilt. On September 18th, 2023, I released episodes 12 to 15 of season 3 of Guilt, Finding Heidi to Subscribers. At the time, this was the official end of the season. But I'll let you in on a secret. I knew it wasn't the end. The goal in releasing the episodes this way, as you know, was to give authorities what I believe was the most important information to come out in this case in 34 years. I felt at the time that once I did this, there were going to be two likely outcomes. 
either this was going to be a huge story or nothing would happen. Well, it's been the latter. Since September 18th, I've not been contacted by police or any news media. I guess you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I've come to realise that I could literally find the smoking gun, and even then, nothing will happen. There's only one way to really prove the existing narrative in this case is seriously flawed, and that's to achieve the original goal. I need to find Heidi. Then this story will be so big, it can't be ignored. And with these final episodes, that's what I'm going to try and do. And sitting here right now, typing this, I believe I'm very close. But I'll add that the path that appears to lay before me is going to be extremely difficult. I'm really at the pointy end of this investigation. But now, for every two steps forward, there's one back. And I'm fine with that. But it will mean that a new episode every week is not really realistic. I'll simply release what I can as soon as I can. And I'll appreciate your support. In a recent subscriber-only update, I spoke of some important points that I wanted to make clear. And I'd like to repeat those here. And this is to do with the story. What you hear is honestly only about 10% of what's happened or is happening. There is so much more to the story and how it's unfolded. I constantly think, man, if I could share what's happening right now, it would be wild. But for any number of reasons, I can't. And I know a lot of you understand this, but there are also many that don't. Let me put it this way. If you're listening and you ever think, I can't believe Ryan didn't ask this question. I can promise you, I did. But for whatever reason, it wasn't included. Remember that this is an investigation first and a podcast second. There are so many dynamics going on all the time, from witness safety to my own, to establishing trusting relationships, to legal considerations, and that's just to name a few. I undertake the investigation, then decide how to turn this into a coherent narrative for the podcast. I always try to include everything I deem relevant, but like the old adage, you're only seeing the very tip of the iceberg. Remember that when you hear interviews, they are edited for time and relevance. If an interview is 40 minutes in the podcast, it was probably two and a half hours in reality. Before we move forward, I want to add a correction. In an earlier episode, I stated that David Turner had previously been convicted of murder for the deliberate running down of a motorbike rider. It's come to my attention that this was an error. Turner did cause the death of this rider in 2009 when he pulled into the path of the bike. He then went on the run for over a year, and in the meantime his partner Angela Neal took the fall, 
before eventually he turned himself in. The police believed the accident was intentional, and this was initially reported. However, this was never able to be proven, and Turner was actually only convicted for perverting the course of justice, not murder. I just want to say a quick thank you to all of you listening and supporting the podcast and this story, Heidi's story. On October 14th, it was Heidi's birthday. She spent her last 34 in New Zealand, and I hope that with your help, it will be the last. And I'll say a particular thanks to all the paying subscribers. It really is thanks to all of you supporting me with a few bucks a month that I can keep this dream alive. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find the Acast link in the description of every episode, or for Apple users, you can subscribe in a couple clicks right through the app. Okay, with that admin out of the way, a few days ago, I sat down with a person I never thought I'd meet. And someone you probably never thought you'd hear. This is episode 16. Let's get into it. You know, when I started this podcast and not just finding Heidi, but guilt, you know, I always sort of thought, you know, you think you're going with the best of intentions and I can make a difference, but I suppose in the back of your mind, you probably think like, well, I really, I'm not sure. But I mean, this case in particular right now is just, it just it's blowing me away what, what's happening and who's coming forward and it's, it's quite surreal, this whole thing, you know, and I honestly just, I believe it in time when this all finishes up, it's going to be the biggest story, you know, one of the biggest criminal stories in the world it's just it's so crazy what's unfolding there's so many people coming forward and finally doing the right thing now and but anyway um, yeah I'm in the car driving right now to an interview that I never would have thought was going to happen I You know, there was one name on my list that I hadn't contacted yet. And it was because I I sort of thought, you know, I'd get my ducks in a row first. But then I also sort of thought that he was never... I thought he'd tell me to fuck off and and there'd be no chance of any dialogue there. But when I did pick up the phone and made that call... I dialed James Turner's number and the response I got was beyond what I could have ever expected. I'm the eldest, I'm the eldest of the Turner brothers, James Turner. Ten minutes ago, I walked through the door of James Turner's home. The replay of the South Africa vs France Rugby World Cup quarterfinal is playing on the TV and James greets me with a big smile and a firm handshake. It's a meeting I never thought would take place. 
but here I am, and it's not going at all how I'd have expected. He speaks fast, with a classic New Zealand accent. And despite what's been insinuated about his possible involvement in this case, James is friendly and more than happy to speak to me, to tell his side of the story. All I can tell you is, is my truth, eh? You know, what I know, sort of, and what I don't know. Yeah, I'll just put this one I, I don't know fuck all, really. Up. Your family, it's quite an interesting dynamic, the whole, the whole thing, you know? Oh, the crew was a bit rough back in the day, yeah. Um, so, yeah, why don't you take me back so you guys just... Were you, where were you from originally, your family? Mercer, just up the road. Oh, really? Just yeah. up here? Yeah. And how did you end up out for Akawai, up Fongmata? Well, the thing is, my, on my mum's Maori side have got links to Matara Bay, which is just um, just north of Whangamata, uh, just actually south south of Whangamata. And me and the old man went there and cleared the bush up there in the bay, you know, back in 1975. And they had their wedding, their honeymoon, they went through Whangamata and out that area, and she always loved it. So we went from sort of from Mercer to Rotorua to the King Country and ended up back in Whangamata with the old man working in a bush crew. And that's how we all ended up at Whangamata. Like doing logging and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, how old were you? I was 14 and a half when oh, yeah. we went up there, yeah. yeah. I sort of just left school into the bush. In those days, you know, if you could get a job, the old boy and the old girl, you know, if you can get a job, you can leave school. So I left school about 14 and a half, 15. Yeah. And um, tell me about your dad, like what kind of guy he was that you knew. Ooh, he was feared, mate. He was a hard fucking critter. You know, like he'd be your best mate, but if you crossed him, oh, crikey, dick. You're in deep shit. Like, you know, see, I've watched him whack a man, and the man bled out his ears. <coughs> and the punch only travelled three inches. <coughs> yeah, so, no, no, you, know, you didn't miss me, mess with the old man. But he's a nice gun. All my mates, you know, fucking, I'll stand by him because he was a good gun. I've heard this before, but this time, it's coming direct from his son. Donald Turner Senior was a hard man, but if you didn't cross him, then he was a good man, known for his knockout punch. James spent a lot of time travelling New Zealand as a tattoo artist, so was never really a permanent resident on the Taikato farm, but fills me in on Parakawai and who was living out there around this time. Well, it's a strange thing, like I'd do odd chores for the old man out on the farm, and like I had an old house bus that I'd parked across the river at the same place where the batch ended up, and like I've sort of lost contact with the old man, and I was doing my thing, travelling around, doing my tattoos and stuff, and I come back to visit him and he'd shifted from town out to the farm to live with Glennis in that cabin. And when I got there, there was a there was a um a batch out by the river. And I said to the old man, I said, you know, what's what's the story here, Dad? And he goes, Oh bloody, I've got a social club in town. We go out there and that's where we have our drinks on a, the last Sunday of every month. I'll get all the locals and we'll go out and get on the piss and blah blah and oh yeah, bloody that young fella Lindsay Darren Lindsay got kicked out of his off the farm because he's such a little burglar. So I've set him up out there, so you know, somewhere for the ho dads to, to, to bunk out when they get thrown out of town. 
said, oh, yeah, oh, okay. And he goes, oh. He goes, oh, and you've come back to town. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, you know, for a little while, I bought my girlfriend, Jodie Dando, with me. He goes, oh, do you mind giving me a hand? The old milk cow bit the dust the other day. She died, and I, I you know, found it too late to butcher her. But I'm going to dig a pit with the bulldozer, and we put the, put the old cow in there so I can grow me, grow me veggies on top of her, you know, my pumpkins. He says, okay, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, but there's a bloody big chain on the gate, father. He goes, oh, those bastards from bloody Waihee that get the firewood for Pat Tiger, they've been ripping them off, taking the firewood out when they fucking said they weren't. So I put the chain on the gate to keep those burglars out. I said, oh, okay then. So I went out there and unlocked the chain and got the bully ready for him to, to get this cow and the fucking thing. And listening to the podcast, mate, and that dude, the, the other Lindsay fucking said about the some body or something beside the fence, that was a fucking cow. <laughs> At that time, moment in time. You know, that was the old milking cow. Fuck's sake. And like, I'd invite anyone to dig up the pit where, the cow, where we buried the cow, because all they'll find is cow bones. Here, I think James is referring to a message sent to a journalist that there was a body 75 metres from the batch at some point. However, this didn't come from a Lindsay, but I believe was sent by Donald Turner. And I'd assume Donald wasn't referring to a cow, but who knows. I ask about David and James's relationship growing up. And there's no doubt there's a brotherly love between the two. But it seems that over the years, it has become strained. Oh, he's always had a fucking shitty liver. <laughs> That's what my mother would say to if she was alive. Oh, that one always had a shitty liver. He was in a hurry the day he was born. She said the story she says to me was that I, she says to the nurse, I've had my baby lying in the hospital bed. Nurse goes, no, she goes, no, no, I'm not, this baby's in a hurry. This, this baby's in a hurry? Oh, in a hurry, yeah. Yeah, she had him, she had him in the hospital bed. Like, oh, you know. She literally had the baby. Had the baby, yeah. She said, your brother come out running. She said, he'll spend the rest of his life running. This is my mother before she died. She said, he spend the rest of his fucking life running, son. And can you watch out for him? You're the big brother. Can you watch out for your little brother? Well, I used to, and fuck, it just got harder. As he got older, it's gotten harder and harder to look out for the, for the bugger, eh? But he's always had a chip on his shoulder. Always been angry. You know, angry at fucking the world. Yeah. And what was the relationship like between you and him? Oh, we used to fight like cats and dogs when we were young. But as we got older, I'd try and look out for him. You know, and if I was bleeding on the side of the gutter and I needed someone, he'd come and pick me up. Same as The same applied to me. If he ever rang me and he's bleeding on the side of the gutter after getting beaten up, or you know, I'd take him under my wing and give him a feed. Yeah. Yeah. Like all the times he was in jail, I was the one he used to write to. Out of all the family, you know, like they can say whatever they like, but fucking he'd write to me. And he had nobody, you know, so I'd fucking send him a bit of money in there or whatever, write to the prick. Yeah, he was, and when, when the family left for Australia, when mum realised she was going to die, she wanted to travel the world, so they got as far as Sydney. And Dave went with them. And after about three years over there, he left school and did his first stint in, um, what's that, Long Bay Goal or whatever it is over in Sydney, that big fucking nasty prison. Oh, okay. So he was only been young then? Yeah. He was only about fucking 15, 15, 16 then. When he first went to prison? Yeah, mate. Jesus. Yeah. It's, uh, so we worked, we worked it out. I think it was the 16 years he was over there, he spent nine years in jail. On and off. So when they finally deported him back to New Zealand, it was fucking hard case. I was in fucking Mataan. I get a phone call for this strange voice on the end of the phone. 
Well, first it was a CIB. Oh, this is the Auckland CIB. Well, that someone needs to speak to you, Mr. Turner. I said, how'd you get my number? We're the fucking New Zealand police. You know, we can get whatever we need. Oh, okay. And this voice goes, g'day, brother. Fuck, is that you, David? He was him on the phone. I hadn't spoken to him for fucking, you know, 16 years. And yeah, he was up there and I fucking, I said, oh, Jesus Christ, I had to come pick up. He said, no, no, I'll be all right, mate. I'll just steal a car from the fucking airport car park. And sure enough, he turns up in his Commodore. He'd stolen from the car park and all the like fucking hell. He said, you're a hard thing. You look like Demise Roussos because he had all this long hair and his long beard. And uh, it sort of started then. I thought, fuck, he's got, he talked too fast, you know. I thought, Jesus Christ, he's been up to no good. He's got to be, you know, like, fuck. And he had all these stories to tell. Like outlandish ones, the adventures that he'd been on and stuff, and but he, he, he wasn't a really he was, didn't seem that dangerous. He said as as he got older, he got more dangerous, eh? Yeah. Started scaring people, and I'd be sitting at home just cruising away. Then all of a sudden, I got the fucking armed defenders knocking on me back door, knocking the back door down, looking for him. Yeah, yeah. where's your brother? Where's your brother? Fucking, I went through years of that. Yeah, the poor buggy got hounded a bit by the cops, eh? Yeah. It made him angrier. He's always sort of on the run from something. Yeah, mate, it's yeah. It's a bit of a cycle, though, eh? Like, then the cops yeah. are after you, then you're running. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a rep as being the clean-up man, you know, like my brothers had caused trouble, and I'd go and try and fucking, you know, dampen the fire down and appease the, you know, the people, say, oh, sorry about that, I'll talk to my brothers and we'll fucking sort it out, we'll get your goods back to you, or whatever we need to do. <laughs> yeah. But oh, since I've been crook, you know, I've had, uh, been a bit estranged from the family. <coughs> I talk to me every now again on the phone. That's about it. Yeah. Like, I've got a clear conscience, man. I just, you know, I'm just looking. <coughs> as far as that goes, I've been married 30 years. I've got four healthy sons. And sort of, you know, I've, I've had a pretty good life. Just some fucking cigarettes got me. There's one thing I haven't mentioned. James is dying. Today, while we speak, he's sitting in his armchair with two thin, clear hoses in his nose, running a few metres to a machine, pumping fresh oxygen into his lungs. What have you actually got? What I've got emphysema, COPD. Yeah. 15% of my lung capacity left. Which is, that's why I'm on this bloody breathing machine thing. It's on 24-7. Yeah. <coughs> I've got emergency bottles beside the bed and stuff. If, if the power cuts, like I was sitting here one night watching telly and the, all the power went down. Oh, Christ, someone had a power pole. Because they still have power poles out there somewhere. <laughs> and fucking I ended up, fuck. So I had to come from here to me fucking bedroom and get me emergency supply. And it was the middle of the night. So there's no lights. And I'm fucking in the dark and I'm trying to find this fucking, oh, Jesus Christ. So now I've always got it plugged in all ready to go if that happens, so I'm all good to go. I decide it's time to discuss the reason I'm really here today. Heidi and Urban. And James's possible involvement. But this whole thing has him scratching his head. Because according to James, he says he can't speak for anyone else, but personally, he never met the Swedes. And he certainly wasn't involved in their murders. Um, you know, a big part of this is going to be what Spud said, you know, the statements and that he made. 
These dudes are all on drugs or something, mate. Fantasy land. Fucking sake. Like, you know, I've heard through my little sleuth, because she's watched all your podcasts. That's my wife, actually. But no, fucking spud. Oh, jeez. I I can't work out why he would say the things he says. Like, my wife seems to think it's because every time I've got Brother Dave in my life, she worked out the dates. She said, every time your brother's in your life, spud will get ugly on you and, and say some shitty things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was some, that was according to the wife. That's her theory on things, and she doesn't do drugs and stuff. And so, no, it's all news to me, mate. It's even news of what Don was saying. Like, I've, I was in contact right up till two months before he passed away, and he did, never mentioned anything. He didn't mention nothing about fucking Heidi or Urban, or you know any of that sort of stuff. Fucking find it, it's really weird that, that news. Like when I spoke to my sister-in-law Carla. She was all friendly and stuff, and now um, since she knows that I know, oh Christ, she won't answer my calls. <laughs> yeah. So you know, fucking hell, what's the matter with these people? Yeah. Let the truth set you free. Fuck. Mm. Like I'm really heartbroken. The little fella's gone. Yeah. You know, and sort of they, there was some uh, some well some things he'd done, like with Christina Heimona and stuff, like, well, I wasn't very impressed with, but they were adults at the time, you know, so they do their own, make their own beds. And it's true, like, she was a nice girl, till she met Don, and he turned her into a bit of a fucking drug fiend. But other than that, mate, fucking, I don't, you know, with this Don, I just don't feel sorry for the little bugger. Like, he was uh, adopted out as just children, we didn't meet him till he was four years old. Yeah, he'd been adopted to a family in Adimuri. They were at Christmas one day at Mercer and fucking, they brought this strange little fella out in front of the family, got all us kids out there in the lounge and oh, you, it's about time you meet your little brother. What? <laughs> we got a little brother. Yeah, and there was Spud. Well, and then he was part of your life from that yeah, point from on? The, yeah, yeah. So he'd always, he always felt like an outsider. Yeah, he told me all this, you know, before he died. He said, I always felt like an outsider. I always felt there was something missing, like my family wasn't my family. I said, yeah, we're your blood family. Just the, the first four years of your life, father thought that you were someone else's. You thought mum had played around on him. Oh, really? That was the whole reason. Oh, so he was, that's quite ruthless. He yeah. That, so he cut him. Yeah, yeah. So the old man was like that. He had a ruthless side to him. Broke me mum's heart. But she hung in there fat like they do the old school, you know, married until death do us part. Mother was prepared to forgive him. I didn't come here to speak about James's brother Donald, better known as Spud. But despite the family becoming somewhat estranged over the years, I can clearly see that his recent passing has had an effect on James. Only a couple months before Donald died, James travelled to visit him. And when they spoke, Donald opened up about how his drug use had stemmed from his difficult childhood. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I asked James about his own drug use during that time. And he confirms that yes, they were all partying pretty hard back then. But believes it's not as bad as some make it out to be. Did you, I mean, it, it seems, you know, around Fong and, and there, there were a lot of drugs and stuff back in those days. And it seems like in your family, did you dabble at all in that stuff? Oh, shit, yeah, we all did, mate. <laughs> you know, like, Christ, up, down, or around. What are we going to do this weekend, boys? You know, like it was a fucking hard case. We'd have, uh, at harvest time, we had our marijuana. At winter time, we had magic mushrooms. And springtime, we had fucking opium poppies. You know, it was all fun and all beer and skittles. We called it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it sounds like fun. It was the wild west back then, in a way. Sure, too, mate. The sticks and all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but it wasn't. There was nothing dangerous about the the place. You know, like it was fucking. It was a like, we all surfed and stuff and rode bikes and had a good time, you know? There was nothing... Nothing hideous went down. You think people are making it sound worse than what it is? Yeah, it yeah, mate. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. yeah. You would describe yourself back in those days, you know? Um, Looking back the, the, now, like, what would you... Well, I've got, I've got no bad memories. Man, they called me the mayor. I was the mayor of Wonga. The cops called me the, the village idiot. Which they regretted. <laughs> Spud met a couple of them. Now showing off their scars to him. And he goes, What? He said, Yeah, Jim, these fucking six foot detectives come up to me and said, Oh, take it out of your big brother for us. He left his calling card and they showed me their scars. <laughs> I said, Yeah, I was like, Oh, those two idiots. So he called me the village idiot. Fucking hell. And even the local cops said that they'd tried a bit of entrapment and they got their beans. Yes, that's what I suppose you call it the Wild West, though. It was the Wild West. And James has a lifetime of incredible tales that would scare the shit out of the average person. He'd earned the nickname T-Bar due to his famed knockout punch. In his day, much like his old man, James was someone you didn't cross. But he kept good to his word to his mother, to look out for David in his own way. He recalls David did go overseas for a long time. And out of the blue, James received a postcard from David. From the last place he expected. New York City. A trip partly paid for by James's own pride and joy. His Harley. Oh, yeah, fucking, yeah, text me hog off me. 
1968 hardtail shovel. Uh, they call them pan shovels because the pan had bottom end. Like it was a collector's item. I bought it off the Hells Angels through Universal Cycles. And it's, I left it with the wife. I was working for the old man in the bush at Hotwater Beach. And I'd leave home at, on, a, on a Monday morning and come home on a Friday night. Well, I left for work that week, and on the Wednesday, my wife rings up because we our cell phones were like your car battery sort of thing back in those days. And we had one in the middle of the bush, and she rung me crying, and what? What happened? Your brother come with a truck, and he's taken your motorcycle. He what? He's taken your bike, husband. I said, that fucking prick. Well, I couldn't, I didn't, you know, like I was in the bush. I was there till Friday. We had nowhere to get out. The old man would drop us off in there. We'd stay there for a week felling trees and doing bushwork, and then he'd pick us up on the Friday. Well, Jesus Christ, I couldn't get home till the Friday, and by then he disappeared into the ether, ethers with my bike. And then in 1995, my wife gets a phone call. I'm fucking outside working on my chainsaw and my tools and stuff, and she gets a phone call. It's him on the phone. He's at the Auckland Airport. Wanted to speak to me, and I says, I don't want to speak to him. Where's my fucking bike? And this is a lot of years went by, you know, when, when fucking he'd stolen a bike, and he just wants to know that you're okay. I said, well, I'm not going to speak to him unless he's got me fucking bike. Goes, oh, well, he said to t take care and he'll catch up with you one day. Well, fucking one day, about three, four years later, I get a a postcard from New York. It's him. Wish you were here, bro. And it says writing, bear. I go, what the fuck? And check the post stamping New York City. He made it. He's finally, he always wanted to go to America. San Diego, he reckons St. David, he wanted to be, you know, go there and the bugger's there. Wish you were here. Oh, Christ's sakes. Then he, yeah, yeah, mate. Well, he, the, the proceeds. They reckon he got a truck and some pounds for it and stuff, and he ended up selling the truck and the pounds and what did whatever to get there. When he finally come back and I had a good yarmouth about it all, he said he got to Australia. He spent a few months there getting his money up, you know, getting his, um, what do you call it? The old gangsters call it their... Um, Yes, I've got a fucking funny name for it. Grub steak. Get me grub steak up, bro, so that I could carry on like he'd already got the got this fucking um, Iranian... He got a... The dick he'd got an Iranian passport when all that fucking bombing went down in the States. Here he is. He arrived on an Iranian passport. Like, he just slipped through before 9-11. Just about probably two months before that went down, he was in the States. And so, of course, from there, you know, like his passport's hot as fuck, you know, because of the, all that fucking stuff in the Middle East and what they did to the Yanks. Yeah, and then I get a phone call. I'm fucking cruising away. Then I get a phone call at the old man's place. It's fucking him from San Diego, ringing. He's got some, um, some buddy wreckage yard or something he's fucking working at and he's, his life's really grand and all the rest of it. Yeah, making money and he's got a good mate over here, this guy Chris and the fucking best of mates and... It's bloody, um, and then would have been, fuck, nine years, I suppose, he was in the States. Yeah, and then nine years later, I get another one. So here I am, cruising along, enjoying my life. You know, he's away somewhere else fucking doing his thing. It's all good, and then I get another phone call. It's Auckland CIB again, not you cunts again. <laughs> yeah, we've got somebody who wants to speak. I said, don't tell me it's him again. It sure is. Oh, fuck. A couple of um, U.S. Marshals that escorted him all the way back from San Diego, you know, from L.A. to Auckland Airport. Dropped him off at the airport and he wants to speak to you. I said, bro, and he says, I'm back, I'm back. He goes, yeah, but the cunts I fucking 
they kicked me out of America. I walked off the plane here in New Zealand, then they arrested me again when I got here. Some shit he'd done before he left. They caught up with him. Yeah. Yeah, like as uh, there was, there was some people saying, oh, it's because of the Swedes he left the country. Well, I don't know about the timing there, because he was still, he still hung around here for a few years after that. The exact timing of Donald's statement to police compared to when David left New Zealand on the fake passport, I can't say as the New Zealand police have not been forthcoming on my official Information Act request for Donald's statement. I've since made a formal complaint to the police ombudsman, but I'm still waiting. Either way, whether David Turner is involved in the murders of Heidi and Urban or not, he certainly kept the authorities busy in a few countries over his life. James has said, that Donald never mentioned Heidi and Urban's murders to him personally, and he's surprised that Donald implicated him. So why then, in his messages to Christine, did Donald say that James was present at the batch during that time, and as such, is guilty? I pulled out my phone and took another look at that message. And given what James is telling me now, I realised that possibly Donald may have meant something else. The message reads, Don't have zip to do with Dave or James since I grew up and realised beating woman and all others unlucky enough to be around us. And as far as Dave goes, they're both guilty. They were together at the batch when you and I stopped over. As far as Dave goes, they're both guilty. Was Donald referring to David and James here? Or David and someone else. Perhaps another David. Either way, today these comments by Donald are upsetting for James, who really did consider himself a father figure. Obviously, you know, aside from, from Donald, and you know, reading back through that message now, maybe it doesn't actually read that he is dropping you in it. But well, well, he shouldn't, he shouldn't, because fucking had nothing to do with me, and fucking I've always loved the little fella. I can see he'd be ugly on me over his other brother, over me spending time with Dave. Like, I was the only one to, to pick the, like, you know, as, as far as that went. I was the, I was brother Dave's last port of call. Like, he was either that or live under a bridge somewhere. Well, let's, um, let's just quickly, so, you know, Darren Old has said what he said. Ah, a lion cunt. So, yeah, so... Fantasyland. The boys in Fantasyland. It's like he's fucking getting some sort of notoriety out of it, you know, being the notorious... Him and, him and brother Dave get off on that sort of shit. No, I refute everything, anything Dave, uh, Darren Old says, mate. So you, so in terms of Heidi and Urban, you say you never... Nah, uh, never met them, mate. And no, there's no way I would let anyone rape anybody in, front, in my presence. I wouldn't have let brother Dave fucking you step some lovely lady out to just have his sexual gratification. I would have kicked his ass. I would have, I would have saved their lives. They wouldn't, you know, they'd be still alive today if I knew it. If I knew what was going down, Pat was in the in the old house, the homestead, whereas Glenis and father lived in that cabin. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting then. Yeah, like when I come back from my run down to Mangakino, and me and Jody had, we, we were sort of like living out of the car, they had an old tank stand out the back, it was like a same size as a double bedroom. So me and Jody rigged it up. We got fucking built sides on it and made a little bedroom out of it, and that's where we crashed for a while. 
And that was fucking about two months after the Swedes went missing. So you think, so at the, you know, so at the time this went down, you were down Mangakino. Mangakino, yeah. Yeah, tattering the Rappos. Mangakino is a small, rural town two and a half hours south of Whangamata. And according to James, during the time of the Swedes' disappearance, he was there, doing tattoo work on a local gang. This is something I haven't yet been able to verify, so we'll have to take James's word. But it's what he alleges he saw when he got back to Whangamata that I found the most interesting. I went down there once with my two brothers, that's Spud and Dave. They ripped them off, ripped me mates off, so I never took them back. I was down there for about a week that time. I come back up north. I scored my, my house bus and we had it parked across the river and then this fucking, these two battle wagons come sideways in across the river and up beside my house bus and all these mad Marys hopped out with wolf and hammers and shotguns looking for Spud and Dave. It was the Rappahoes. Coming to the bus, I said, oh, jeez, boys, what's up? Where's your fucking brothers, JT? Where are they? Those fucking dirty cunts. I said, what happened? We went on a bike run and they were supposed to look after the pad. We come back and they'd stolen all our fucking opium poppies and all, all our pounds of dope we had in the freezer. Your brothers took it all. I said, those filthy bastards. And like I said, I, I hadn't seen them. I said, boys, I'm sorry about this. It was uh, Ed Nami was the president. I said, Ed, but big Ed. I said, mate, I haven't seen the fuckers. I have fucking no idea, mate. And Lance Harding was there and he come in and he fucking really liked my bus. And I was going to sell it, you know, like to get, get another vehicle and get myself all grub staked up again. And so I said to Lance, I'll come down in a, in a month's time in the bus. I'll bring it down to you and we'll, we'll do a deal. You know, I'll swap you, you know, rah, rah, rah for it. And so um, I went down in that bus with the skinheads and that was Gordon and Kevin and Jody. We went down in the bus back to Mangakino. I spent a week down there tattooing. The, the young fellas went, they carried on to Taranaki and I come back to Whangamata. That was when I saw the new bull bars on the old man's Subaru. I said, Jesus, father, where'd you get them from? Oh, your brother Dave sold them to me for a hundred bucks. I said, oh, excellent. Yeah, something about fucking Tamahiri fucking sold him a wagon. I said, oh, you know, like me not knowing nothing about that. I said, oh, sweet ass. Tamahiri, you, John? We know his brother David. I said, no, I've never met David Tamahiri. I met John Tamahiri, yeah, that's that politician. Because he goes, he holidays down at Matara Bay. John Tamiri's got a got a cabin down there. He built yeah. a real flash one, you know, with all the all the go fast goodies in it. Wow, actually, so you said to me as well on the phone um, that they knew each other. Yeah, the fucking it's according to the old man, they were jailbirds together. I said, yeah, they met in jail, son. This is what the father told me. He goes, yeah, that fucking Tamiri, he's a fucking oh, he's a bit of a strange bastard. This is, the, this is father's words, his exact words. He's a bit of a strange bastard. And I'm, father, my, my, my old man's, uh, he's an astute judge of character, right, you know? And for him to say that, like, that's fucking, that's, you know, that's not like the old man. That's like telling me he's a dangerous cunt. Yeah, when he says a strange bastard and those two words. Yeah, tell me, so, you know, when you come back from Angakino, I know it's a long time ago, it's hard to remember exactly, but... You know, do you remember when the Swedes went missing? It was a big fucking news story. Well, yeah, but it, d- it didn't. Like I've I read about it and I heard about it in the news, you know. But there was no way that I equated them with Fungamata. Yeah. Like I thought it was Thames. I thought all that trouble went down in Thames. I oh, said so you never met Dave Tomahedi. No, never met him. No, never met him, mate. 
but you did so you did speak with your old man about um, about bull bars and stuff at that point. Yeah, yeah, the bull bars on his on his Subaru because when I left when I went before I went to Mangakino, the old man had his Subaru and there was no bull bars on it. Yeah. It was just you know just a, a Subaru station wagon for work. And what but, colour was it? Creamy white colour. Yeah. What kind of condition was it in here? Ooh, well, not. It wasn't rough as guts, but it wasn't. It's you know, it wasn't a um, concourse condition. It's been a nagging question since Darren Old first suggested it: that Donald Turner Senior did own a white Subaru station wagon. I found it difficult to confirm this, so I've always left it as a maybe. Now, we can lock it in. There would have been two white Subaru station wagons present on that Parakawai property back in April of 1989. One being Donald Turner Sr.'s and the other, Heidi and her barns. Does this mean 100% they were switched? No. Is it a hell of a coincidence? You're damn right. The car police eventually recovered and is believed to be hiding her barns did have bull bars. So if there was a set on Donald Turner Senior's when James returned home, then a new set would have had to have appeared from somewhere. Or, the vehicle James saw was in fact hiding in her barns prior to it leaving the property. When Spud messaged Christine, he said the car people were driving around was the Swede's rental. We know that Hyde and Urban's vehicle had a set of bull bars, and Donald Turner Sr.'s didn't. So it would stand to reason that if James is remembering correctly, the car he saw would have had to be the Swede's and not his father's. Of course, the fact we now know there were definitely two white Subarus changes everything. The car parked at the end of Tararoo Creek Road on Sunday 9th of April. It didn't need to then drive all the way to Parakawai to be seen by Darren Lindsay in the bush as I'd previously thought. That could quite simply, and more logically, have just been the other car that Darren saw. And it would make sense as Darren saw it there for at least two days. It's a lot to digest, and it doesn't prove the cars were switched or that one was buried. But James did say that to his memory, after that day, he never saw the white Subaru again. Now let's focus on arguably the most important detail of all. The confirmation that David Tamahedi and David Turner did in fact know each other. When I spoke to David Turner, he did imply that he was on the property with Heidi and Urban at the same time as David Tamahedi, so perhaps it's not a huge revelation. But if true, this does corroborate his story. As for Turner and Tamahedi being jailbirds, this is something I'll need to look into. But James says if his father says something, he'd believe it. Aside from the fact James says he wasn't there that day and never met the Swedes, he says the first thing that doesn't make sense is that if he was there, where was his car? 
I never used to walk the streets like I always had a vehicle. You know, like my Red Falcon. I had my Red Falcon then, my XA, that I bought off the old man. I had that car in those days. Now, that would have been parked there. And I wouldn't have hidden it away. It would have been parked right there in front of the cabin if I was there. And I always had a partner, like I had Jody, you know, before Jody was Lena. After I finished with Jody, um, I had a couple of girls in Waihi, and I, I met my wife. And I married her, and fucking, you know, I've been married for 30 years to her. So the big question is if James is innocent, then why has Darren Old placed him there, in the cabin, standing over Urban? It really does become one man's word versus another. James doesn't know quite what to make of it, but does have one theory. I don't fucking know. I know for a fact that he thinks that I ripped off a couple of pound off him. There was Brother Dave and fucking his associate, b- b- Mrs. Beats. Like, they did a job on Darren, you know. Fucking had fuck all to do with me. I, they actually asked me if I'd want to get involved with it for the, for the proceeds, you know. They wanted to share the fucking ill-gotten gains. And I says, no fucking way, mate. I said, That's, that dude is growing with the uh, uncle of my, one of my sons. Like, his family. I said, I can't do that shit and be involved with that crap with you guys. Fucking hell, get a grip. Well, fucking, when I owned a Jag, I had a lovely XJ6. And the rumour was it around Wonga was that Darren's dope bought my Jag. Right. I used the proceeds of that of that that scam job to buy my jag which is not true but I think maybe in the back of his mind he believed a little bit of that rumour So the big question is if James is innocent then why has Darren Old placed him there in the cabin standing over Urban It really does become one man's word versus another James doesn't know quite what to make of it but claims it could be to do with Darren possibly thinking he was involved in the theft of a large quantity of marijuana many years ago. Personally, I've spent a fair amount of time with Darren, and I don't believe he would purposefully implicate someone unless he genuinely believed it to be true. Each person deserves the right to tell their side of the story. You've heard Darren, and you've heard James. Is it possible that Darren may have mistaken James for someone else? Or is James lying today to protect himself? You need to decide in your own mind what to believe. But I think some weight has to be given to the fact James has been upfront and open to speak. And rereading Donald's messages, perhaps he wasn't implicating James as I first thought. I spend a good few hours with James, and most of it we spend chatting about his old adventures, which I can tell he remembers fondly. When the subject does turn to Heidi Urban, his tone becomes serious and he makes clear his disdain for that type of behaviour. But the reality is that James doesn't really have much to add in regards to the case. He says he wasn't there and that he didn't meet the Swedes. He said he did hear the rumours over the years and actually asked his brother on a couple occasions if he had any involvement but says that David always maintained that he didn't. He did say that a plates job was a pretty common occurrence, whereby license plates would be switched on vehicles. He had an XY sedan, a blue one. Brother Spud did. It was a plates job. 
one of his mates had, had done a place job for him and it was a fucking, it was nice, nice expire. But I'm pretty sure Spud was driving around that in those days. So, and that's, you know, you say a place job, that's just yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that's, there's definitely experience in the family. Yeah, right? yeah, kind of yeah, thing. yep. So when you hear the story about the Savaris being switched. I'd believe it, yep, yep, I wouldn't put it past them. But it's like fucking the old man wouldn't do nothing if there wasn't an urn for him. But that's where you draw the line with this fucking, uh, this bloody, you know, raping and killing and stuff. I can't see the old man being party to that. I'll add that every person I've spoken to that knew James had expressed real surprise that he would ever be involved in murder. Everyone always says the same thing. You step out of line and you're in big trouble. But innocent people, nah, that's not his style. After meeting James, there was one person I knew I needed to find. His girlfriend at the time, Jodie Dando. I tracked her down in Australia, and we spoke briefly over a scratchy phone line. You know, when I did eventually call him, he said, I've been waiting for your call. And he's kind of perplexed by this whole thing. And... Yeah is adamant that he is completely innocent. He never met the Swedes. Yeah, and he's been real cooperative. I've talked to him a lot, actually, in the last sort of four or five days. Um, yeah. And he's basically saying that at the time that he thinks this happened, that you guys were down Mangakino because he was tattooing um, a gang down there or a couple gangs or something down there. Yeah, that quite possibly could be right on the bus in there because um, I've been trying to rack my brain, you know, about that time because my mum's birthday is on the 10th of April. Oh, wow. So I would have thought I would have been in Auckland around her somewhere or with her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Jay, you know, I um, he, he, he certainly, I mean, he's either a fantastic liar or, you know, he's telling the truth. And Well, he he's not one normally for lying, I can honestly say that. You know, I knew him pretty well at the time and I would wouldn't have thought he'd be a party to anything like that. Yeah, it's um I, I just was I w- just wanted to run past you if that Mangakino story could ring true. Yeah, it actually does, because we were down there. James was tattooing um, some of the guys in the club down there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a few things that happened, you know, in our time, and I always did actually get the truth, so... Yeah, he seemed... Even if it hurt, hurt, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I spent a few hours with him at his house, and then we've, yeah. we've spoken probably three hours on the phone. And, um, I'm so pleased to hear this. He, yeah, he's being amazing, you know, and he, he actually went down and spent a, a few days or a week with Donald or whatever, and, you know, and they kind of, yeah. um, and, you know, they had a bit of a bonding sort of thing, you know, and Donald sort of told him a lot of stuff. I don't think Donald would be, like, bonding with him and telling all of this if he thought James was involved in those murders. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Like, Donald's beef with James, more than anything, was that he was a terrible father, yeah. more than anything. And he, and he wasn't um, a great, you know, boyfriend or husband material. Mm. And, I mean, I used to get phone calls from Donald. I'm over here in Australia, 
you know, I've been here for a couple of years and my phone rings and it was Donald. And he's just catching up to have a chat to Devon and just wanted to tell me that I'm a great mum and I was doing a top job. You know, like, it's, he'd do that yeah. sort of stuff. He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. he was. You know, like, James was a, you know, like he'd beat people up and all that sort of stuff, but he always thought he had a good reason for it, you know. Yeah, that's the <laughs> way he told it, yeah. Story, yeah. I've spoken to James for a decent length of time now, on the phone and then our meeting in person. And I've got to say that he does come across positively. I can't specifically say James wasn't involved because I don't know. There's nothing to say that he wasn't other than what you've just heard. But rereading Donald's messages now that I've met James, I don't believe he was implicating him in the murders. He was just throwing him under the bus for other offences. And with everything I've heard about Donald recently from those close to him, he was deeply affected by what took place on that Taikato property in April of 1989. He hadn't spoken to David for a long time, but had invited James to his home only two months before his death. Something I don't see happening if he believed James had been involved in the murder of two innocent tourists. James didn't have the answers I may have hoped, but he did have a couple points of interest to add. And as far as this cause, to try and find Heidi, he's right in behind it. He said that wherever she is, her wairua, or spirit, needs to be put to rest. And I couldn't agree more. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi and Urban, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and you can join the discussion with thousands of other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding, and you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast+. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.